This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The coronavirus pandemic is now into its third year, and while the Omicron variant appears to be receding in life and many ways has returned to normal, COVID-19 is still with us. People are still negotiating the challenges of returning to work, going out to eat, and other aspects of daily routines. And for parents, making sure their kids are safe as they navigate this new normal. According to a report from the American Psychological Association, parents weren't able to recover from pandemic burnout before the Delta variant of COVID-19 hit the United States in 2021. I invited some parents to join the conversation. Erica Ransom, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Bree Watson, thank you. Thank you. And Judith Zisman, thanks as well. Thank you. First, though, let's talk to Sharon Carnahan. She's Professor of Psychology at Rollins College and Executive Director of the Hume House Child Development Centre, Thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. What do you think the impact of the pandemic has been on parents, and what are you seeing in your research? The first thing to remember is that we were all in the same storm, but we were not all in the same boats. So some parents had access to relative care to help spell them at home while they were taking care of homeschooled children. Some had access to computers and um, country homes and automobiles where they could drive their children to a remote park. Um, And they were able to switch their work online. Um, I would call those the people in yachts. But you also had lots of people in canoes and rafts. They had to leave their children at home with older siblings in order to go to work. Um, They watched as their favorite childcare centers closed, okay? We lost a third of the early childhood workforce, moved on to other jobs or left the field entirely. And every one of those lost childcare jobs is a multiplier of a whole classroom full of children whose parents now didn't have access to care. So um, parents in canoes and and rafts were under enormous stress. There's a recent meta-analysis that indicates that uh, 47% of the 8,000 parents surveyed were experiencing clinically elevated levels of anxiety or depression um, at the end of uh, the worst of the pandemic. Um, so some of the lasting effects, the child care workforce has changed for good. Um, accessibility is lower, salaries are up slightly, and the federal government has recognized that it's going to have to subsidize child care in order to have a coherent workforce. Children experienced multiple years of uneven care of um, childcare instability and parenting instability. As parenting stress went up, parents weren't as good at parenting. In our study of 70 parents, uh, we found that the higher the stress level, the more likely parents were to say that they'd used harsh punishment recently that they'd never used before. So I think we can, even though children and families are remarkably resilient, I think we're going to see uh, changes in stress and coping that are going to last for quite a while. Professor Carnahan, what would be your advice to parents who are, you know, still trying to figure this out after two years? 
Are there some takeaways from your studies over the last two years of the kinds of stresses that have been on parents? Like, what would you say to parents contemplating the next phase of the pandemic as hopefully things wind down? Mm -hmm. Uh, Parents, you are your child's secure base. You are their anchor in the world, their port in a storm. So I would say put on your own oxygen mask first. Parents, try hard to take care of yourself. Reduce the demands on you. It's not the time to take on a new volunteer job, right? Reduce your family's stress, go out less, consume less, and try to spend more calm time with your children. Um, For children, I would say for resiliency, I guess, routine is king. Uh, Help your children build a predictable daily routine and just give tons of grace, grace by the bucketful, grace to your partner, grace to yourself, grace to your children, grace to your children's teacher. Um, everyone is doing the very best they can. And the kinder we are to each other, the less we flare up in front of our kids, the calmer they're going to be and the better they're going to be able to cope. I appreciate those nautical metaphors and the idea that it's a storm that affects everyone, but we've each got our own mode of transportation or safe harbour. Well, Sharon Carnahan, Professor of Psychology at Rollins College and Executive Director of the Hume House Child Development Centre, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. I want to turn now to the parents, and as you reflect on that, what does that sort of feel like listening to that 30,000-foot view of things does it feel like a storm and we're all kind of rolling around in our own little boats trying to figure it out Judith what do you think about that idea yeah it does I mean I think that for us um the boat metaphor is is particularly apt because it's so isolated we're all in our own little boats and um I'm a single parent so having just me and my kid in the boat has been lonely for the past two years and you know, occasionally we'll pass other boats and wave at them, but um, it's definitely been, while we've been lucky, I've been able to work. My son goes to a school that's been fantastic and supportive and low COVID and nearby and all of these things. Um, We've still found the isolation to be, be really the hardest part. And Judith, for our listeners, just to clarify, how old is your son? Uh, He's almost 10. And I work from home as an experienced interactive designer. Erica, what about you? What's going through your mind reflecting on what we heard from Professor Carnahan and this notion of the levels of isolation and, I guess, solidarity that parents have been able to experience throughout the last few years? Sure. I think the pandemic, all the phases of it, even where we are now, really made me more aware of some of the privilege that I have access to and some of the privilege that um, other parents that I'm familiar with did not have access to. Um, I too was able to transition to work from home. Um, My husband and I are parents of an 11-year-old girl and an eight-year-old girl. And at the time, two years ago, I guess they were nine and seven, or nine and six rather, like just to be able to have the resources, like take them out in the yard, for example, or my insights of what early childhood education looks like or what have you. Like those were things that were definitely great resources to me and my family. Um, But then the question became, well, how do I extend these, the resources that are, I guess, in my boat to follow along with that metaphor? Like how can I be of service and support to someone else? And at the same time, I also realized some of our limitations 
we don't have any extended family here. And so like building a bubble that you can trust, we weren't really able to do that in the early stages of the pandemic. And so it was a challenge. I think everyone agrees that it was a challenge, but um, it is something that has made our family stronger in a lot of ways and, and identified some of weaknesses and opportunities that we need to work through as well. Bree, you wrote, I think, in February last year about the frustration and the challenges of raising two small children in the pandemic. And one of them hadn't even been born right when the pandemic started. So that's a whole nother level of experience in and of itself. But how are you feeling about things now as you reflect back on the last two years or even the last 12 months or so since you wrote that piece? Sure. Yeah. And I have two boys. Um, One is three and a half. So he was just over a year and a half when the pandemic shut things down. And then my Second son was born six weeks into lockdown. Um, so that was pretty challenging to go to a hospital and have a kid and also bring home a newborn and really not have the support that we had had the first time around because it was just, you know, you kind of had to keep to yourself. And then, you know, my kids didn't really experience a loss. They didn't remember going to stores and stuff like that. So it was really interesting to be able to take them to stores and even now, we're only just now really getting back into that, just after the Omicron wave and, and everything else. It's been interesting because it felt more like a loss to me as a parent. I had just gotten on the boat, you know, <laughs> and I didn't have a map. Um, so just to keep the nautical thing going, you know, I think it's getting easier in the last year. Um, I do feel like there's clear skies ahead um, where we know what to do now. If there would be another variant, um, I think I'd be more confident about what I can and cannot do in public. Um, but it certainly was pretty challenging at first. Yeah, no doubt. I wanted to ask about working from home too. And in some ways, you know, it can be both a blessing and a challenge. But for parents who have had that option, you get more time with your family, but it's not necessarily quality time, right? So I want to ask you about how you find that work-life balance or how that's gone over the last two years And Erica, I wanted to start with you. How did you manage to sort of navigate that challenge? Well, when I was really concerned when the pandemic first began that I might have to quit my job or that my husband was going to lose his job. Um, His industry took a dramatic hit and there were lots of cuts at his organization. And so I think, you know, one of the first things that we did was we just kind of crunched the numbers and said, okay, what's our worst case scenario? And then kind of work backwards from there. For me as an employee, I quickly realized that I was not going to get any work done while my children were awake, while they were schooling, as it were. And so just really quickly kind of like doing the math and setting up the logistics of who would be where and, you know, what were the must-haves, first of all, for my partner's job so that we could pay as many bills as possible. And then secondly, academically for them. And then third, for me professionally, I never thought I would be in that situation. That was really, looking back, very kind of surprising. But I also recognize that, one, the fact that we could even have that conversation of like, could you quit your job was a privilege. And especially when there were so many other things that were going on at the same time. People were literally scared for their lives. And so I, I, you know, I don't take that that decision map for granted. But what it, what it ultimately looked like was um, lots of late nights and I just wasn't nearly as good at my job. <laughs> like it just for, for a very long time. And so we really kind of got the hang of it. But fortunately my employer just gave a lot of grace 
and really kind of understood the reality of what it meant to be home with with two elementary age children. And because my employer was able to set that tone that really transmitted throughout the rest of my household. And I'm really grateful for that. Judith, how about yourself? What was that transition like to working from home and figuring out homeschooling and all that sort of stuff? How did that work for you? Sure. Um, You know, interestingly, I had already been working from home. Um, My job has been remote and I was, had been in the process of looking for office space because I was feeling lonely and isolated and like I wanted to join a co-working space and see other people and stop working out of cafes and things like that. Um, But uh, very quickly I I pivoted to uh, what Erica described, a lot of late nights, a lot of really trying hard to help support my kid who um, did not enjoy online learning in any way and had a lot of meltdowns and a lot of challenges. And we actually switched schools um, mid-pandemic. So between uh, in the summer of 2020, he went from one school to another and started at a whole new school, never having met teachers or classmates in person. And um, that was definitely challenging emotionally. Um, And you know, again, my employer also showed a lot of grace. I work for a woman-owned business, a mom-owned business, and um, having someone who had also raised children and understood kind of those challenges was a, a huge, huge benefit. But, you know, we did, our industry was hard hit. We did have pay cuts. Um, we did really have to, to scramble to keep the company going and, you know, made a lot of changes. Um, and that was hard to do while, you know, working from home without any possibility of childcare. And, you know, when my kid needed me and had a crisis or fell down the stairs or whatever it was, you have to just hop off your meeting and go, go do that. And, but I'm finding that that's, that has not changed, you know, still, I was in a conference call last week and my kid was in a Lego competition that parents had been provided a Zoom link to, and the competition was running long. So I said to a client, hold on, my kid's about to win a trophy and I feel like I need to at least be there virtually. So I have split screens going on where I'm watching my kid's Lego competition and also trying to be in a conference call. And my client said, sure, no problem. Bree, what about yourself? How did the conversations about working from home play out in your household? Well, we were able to get coverage for our oldest son um, during the very beginning of the pandemic before the before my second son was born. Um, but then um, I was actually very fortunate to be able to go back into an office, a very isolated area. So I was like one of four people in a very large office um, because daycare had reopened and it was the only way to get anything accomplished. Um, you just can't do anything with everyone screaming at you. Um, so I feel very fortunate with that. And again, I'm gonna echo everyone else's sentiment about teachers especially the teachers who are parents. I don't know how they juggle it all. And they bring some sanity to the insanity of just life in general, but the pandemic for sure. And what about the issues that have dominated the news cycle, like mask wearing and vaccination? There's so much politics tangled up in those things. Erica, you made a comment at the very start of our conversation about having to figure out your bubble and your safety net and and your network. I'm wondering how the discussion around the politics of masking and all of that How did that affect that, if at all? Yeah, I think um, one of the blessings and curses of living in Florida during the pandemic is that uh, we were forced to think things 
through in a way that the rest of the country didn't have to think through quite so early on in the game. I think a lot of it was just this balance between um, physical health and mental health. And then also, as the, the longer it went on, what you can do for a short period of time versus what you can do for a long period of time, they're not the same. And just being okay with changing my mind or, or adjusting as needed. Um, you know, listening to Bree talking about her experiences, it really makes me recognize how different it is to experience this as the parent of someone who is old enough to be vaccinated versus someone who does not have that option yet. Um, at some point along the way, I recognized as a Floridian that people are going to do what people are going to do, that it's up to me and my family to make choices that protect us, but I cannot make a decision on behalf of another person. So I can't make a person operate at a level that I feel like is healthy or safe if they don't agree with that. It sounds so succinct, <laughs> you know, now, but it was definitely not a succinct process to come to those conclusions. I think Floridians are really good about avoiding topics where there might be disagreement and just kind of like leaving those things just kind of like off the table in terms of topics of conversation. But at the end of the day, I just really thought about like who was essential for my emotional and social well-being and who wasn't. I also really try to empathize with a different viewpoint. So if someone was saying something that I really disagreed with politically, I really tried to figure out, well, how did they get there? What were their news sources? What's the feedback that they're getting that would allow them to come to that conclusion? Even if I disagree, it helped me to make them more human instead of this like abstract enemy that we see on social media or in the comment section of the news. I wanted to ask a final question of you all, and, and that is, how do you think the pandemic has changed or impacted your parenting style? And do you think maybe your parenting priorities have changed because of the pandemic over the last two years? And Erica, I'll start with you. Ultimately, I know my kids a lot better. You know, eavesdropping on their um, live lessons, you know, when they're on Zoom or what have you taught me how they interact with their peers and their teachers in a way that was really a gift. I would have never seen that any other kind of way. Um, we had way more time together for them to hear my heart and for me to hear their heart. And so I think I'm a more informed parent. Um, I also think that this has really given us an opportunity to... Um, think about um, empathy and to think about um, to think about it the fact that it really is okay to disagree and that's going to look a lot of different ways in a lot of different spaces we've had really great um, conversations around that and uh, last but not least like I am um, a firm believer now in um, locking the door um, to just kind of create that that personal space and you know like I think as a mom, I think a society puts like a lot of like mom guilt on like, well, why aren't you present 24 seven? I'm like, because, because that's not healthy. That's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for the child. Like we had, we all had a social experiment of what does it mean to be with your child 24 hours a day? And I think um, I really got some peace and some clarity about being able to refute some of that mom guilt that society tries to put on me for what they think I should or should not be doing. I feel more confident about that. Judith, let me ask you that same question. How do you think the pandemic impacted your parenting style? And do you think your priorities changed because of it? Um, you know, it was interesting. I was just thinking about how early on in the pandemic when like beaches were closed and parks and we couldn't go outside and that in retrospect, that was ridiculous and didn't protect anybody. And God, we all needed to get outside. And 
And, um, but it did make me appreciate that more. And, you know, we really, we spent a lot of time riding bikes around the neighborhood and, and now, you know, being able to go to the parks and the beaches and things. And so, you know, really appreciating that. Um, I think that, you know, because uh, I'm a single parent and my son is a single kid, um, the sort of forced intimacy of just the two of us has um, led him to believe we are now equals. And uh, and we're starting to see some of the, the repercussions around um, now that we're going back and, you know, I'm having to do the I'm the boss thing more. Um, that's going to take some time to shake back out. Um, but, you know, it's, again, we, we were lucky. We, we didn't get sick. We had jobs. We were able to, you know, keep things going and in good ways, I was able to, to shelter and protect my kid and in all the ways I needed to. So I feel lucky that, you know, I kept the boat steady to keep our metaphors going. And finally, Bree Watson, how do you think the pandemic impacted your parenting style? And do you think your priorities might have changed because of it? Um, more screen time than I ever thought I would want. Um, but we're, you know, we're okay with it. And we try to make it educational. Um, it's been a challenge for me to have the comfort um, or to get out with two kids in public. Um, to go to the store with two kids is three times as hard for me. Um, and I remember really celebrating our first trip to the grocery store because it was just, you know, something they're like a little wild. It's not something they normally get to do. So trying to calm them and still actually accomplish anything was a challenge, still is a challenge. So it's, to me, I'm still getting my footing in parenting and trying to see how to do that with two kids is still um, it's it's a learning experience well i want to thank our panel of parents for joining us and chatting about the challenges of the pandemic and how it's impacted their parenting brie watson thank you so much thank you so much we've also been speaking with judith zisman judith thanks as well thank you and erica ransom erica thank you so much too it was my pleasure thank you so much and you can hear a longer version of that conversation on our website wmfe.org intersection Still to come, could spiking gas prices have an impact on how we design cities and how we get from A to B? Well, I think survival is uh, our existential challenge. And long term, the only way we're going to survive, given climate change, loss of biodiversity, etc., is by living more efficiently and more sustainably. That conversation after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. As gas prices soar, commuters may be doing some thinking about how they get around and how they could do it cheaper. Could the price of gas also prompt a change in how we design our cities to make them less car-centric and more walkable or bikeable? Bruce Stevenson is an environmental studies professor at Rollins College. He spent two years in Portland living without a car and studying the city's urban design and mass transit. His book about the experience is Portland's Good Life, Sustainability and Hope in an American City – He joins me now to talk more about the book. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, let's start with what's happening globally. Gas prices are spiking more than $4 a gallon at the time we're taping this interview in Florida. 
and that's connected obviously to the geopolitical situation. And you've obviously been thinking about mass transit and urban design now for some time, but I'm wondering at what point do you think more people are going to start seriously reconsidering how we get around, how we get from A to B? I think there's three things. One, right now, it's self-defense. Number two, when we realize the more we invest in transit, the higher our property values and the more desirable our communities will be. And number three, the simple cost savings you develop when the car is an option and not a necessity. Do you think then the cost of gas is going to force us to redesign cities or is it just going to lead us to look elsewhere to for places to extract oil? Good question. Um, Planning by nature is based on long-term investment. And we're finally at the point where obviously oil is not a renewable resource and we have options. So it's going to be financial, but perhaps the current crisis will push us in that direction. And you have to remember in 1973 when we had our first energy crisis, that resulted in 55-mile-an-hour speed limits and uh, gas-efficient cars. So Mm -hmm. this is a long-term issue, but I think the uh, window is closing. Well, let's talk about your book, uh, Portland's Good Life, Sustainability and Hope in an American City. What was the motivation to head to Portland? And and you spent five years kind of working on this project, including two living in the city. So what was the motivation to to study that city's urban design and approach to it? Um, I served on Mayor Dyer's uh, sustainability task force, and he literally marched into the first meeting and said he wanted Orlando to become the Portland of the Southeast in regard to sustainability. And what I was most interested in in the Orlando sustainability plan is this concept of livability, which pretty much articulates a vision of uh, living when the car is an option. So I decided to uh, become a laboratory rat, so to speak, and move to Portland and live the experience Orlando was envisioning. And it's also uh, somewhat self-centered. I purchased a condominium in 2005 in the Pearl District in Portland, Oregon, which was the first neighborhood in 50 years that was centered on a streetcar network. So I had an investment uh, in the good life, as I like to call it, as well as just a research activity. Mm -hmm. Now, you kind of went all in, too. You write that as well as kind of uh, doing away with the car for a couple of years, you also stopped watching television to give you more time on your feet. Right. And I experienced the city, and Portland is one of these uh, cities like Barcelona or on the edge of Copenhagen where you can have a um, wonderful experience walking through the city and having a you know European view of the city where it's theater, it's activity, and all sorts of you know elements from the arts to good food uh, within the city. And I should mention what I did not expect to happen was encountering homelessness and the housing crisis which is the flip side of the story. Yeah, and, and obviously that's something that Orlando is also grappling with. So uh, what what did you find? What, what do you think the lessons there? Because this notion of you know living the good life, sort of a, a kind of human-centric urban design, is it something that's accessible to all or is it just if you have a certain level of income? Good question. In the neighborhood I live in, the Pearl District, it's a model urban renewal project where 30% of all the housing has to be affordable. Mm. That means workforce housing, 80% of median income. And the way the housing is affordable is the affordable housing doesn't have parking. 
that the expectation is you have a streetcar and a wonderful transit system, so don't expect a place to park your car, but in return, housing is affordable. Hmm. What's the definition of affordability, though? Because there are, I mean, you know, we, especially in Florida, you know, we're, we're kind of confronted with some issues like the, the cost of living is, is relatively high, and yet the safety net maybe isn't there, and, you know, demand for housing is through the roof. So we, we've got some challenges, which many communities across the country are facing, right. but some, in some ways they're exacerbated here in central Florida. Well, the key that 80% median income is the definition of affordable housing, um, worker housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another name for it. But anyway, it's 80% of median income. Mm-hmm. The other level is 30 to 50% of median income. And there's you know two different elements. You're trying to house uh, working folks, firemen, policemen, teachers. And the lower end of the spectrum is hiring uh, people that are perpetually unemployed. So it's you know, two different elements. What I found fascinating living in Portland was in the neighborhood where I lived, they ended up doing a model homeless shelter, mm. and it was funded by not the uh, local government, but it was funded by the president of Columbia, a clothing manufacturer in Portland, mm-hmm. who saw the investment in homelessness as also an investment in his uh, own capital. If you're just joining me, we're speaking with Bruce Stevenson, environmental studies professor at Rollins College, talking about his experience living in Portland without a car and studying the city's urban design. His book is Portland's Good Life, Sustainability and Hope in an American City and Lessons that Can Be Applied to Other Cities, including Orlando. So the preface of your book alludes to some of the challenges facing the country in 2020, the pandemic, protests about police brutality. How do you focus on something like urban design, which is a little more kind of nitty-gritty and in the weeds when you're, you know, we are facing these big existential challenges? Well, I think survival is uh, our existential challenge. And long-term, the only way we're going to survive, given climate change, loss of biodiversity, et cetera, is by living more efficiently and more sustainably. And you cannot do that if you expect to put every American in a quarter-acre suburban home. Hmm. So, you have to begin developing in a pattern that's sustainable. And I think, you know, the lesson right now with the Ukrainian issue, the price of gas is going off. But if we live in sustainable neighborhoods where the car is an option, it doesn't take a bite out of our income. And also, you have to remember when we look at the spread of disease, it often happens when the human environment encroaches unnatural areas. Mm. And so that's, an, you know, another issue. And finally, with climate change, you know, in Portland this summer was 116 degrees. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you do everything right. You still have issues to face. But again, the number one thing you can do to mitigate climate change is to get out of your car and walk. What do you think of I-4 Ultimate? Do you think that's a good way to kind of force people to think about how they're using their their, their motor cars? To be honest, I think it's a total waste of money. But um, I would much rather see us invest in a transportation system that the Chinese are doing to uh, increase their capital investments is, you know, we need to have a world-class transportation system if we're going to compete in a world global economy. And relying on a 1950s technology is simply not going to do it. I want to come back to your experience of Portland. And at one point in the book, you say, you know, Portland is not a utopia. But on the other hand, you're talking about the walkability. Um, it sounds like you were really, you know, chasing some kind of 
utopian vision right. there and, and experiencing some of it. And yet, on the other hand, like Portland is portrayed in some media, Fox News, for example, is kind of like this crime-ridden place. Right. What, what is your take on that? It's much easier to get shot in Orlando than it is in Portland, like, I don't know, two and a half times as likely. Also, your chance of getting run over impaled by a, a driver is five times higher uh, in Orlando. Mm-hmm. Now, what I think the issue in Portland was, you know, during the um, George Floyd uh, protests, uh, Portland was a center of protest. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons they have these great spaces where people can gather and protest. You know, if you look in Orlando, where are people going to gather and protest in Orlando? You, you know, maybe in front of a city hall, you know, there aren't a lot of great spaces. So one is the physical spacing. Two, I think, was, you know, the the police enforcement. And that's an issue in Portland. Um, also uh, an issue dealing with the homeless. In Portland, 52% of all arrests are homeless people. Mm. So there's a whole idea of, you know, I think this idea of defunding police is stupid. But the idea of reforming police, we don't want a policeman and an ambulance going out to deal with a homeless person, right? We need to figure out how to make that mark work. And, you know, I was living in Portland when Fox News said the city was burning down. And, you know, there's a small segment of the downtown, but I would say it's much more dangerous in Orlando just driving between the airport and Winter Park where I live. You know, there's always accidents and billboards telling us – of an attorney that'll save us if we get an injury, hmm. and you just don't see that type of you don't see that type of narrative in Portland. So, what what do you think the takeaway is? And and just kind of reflecting on on where we are now. I mean, one one question I have is oftentimes I think people look at this idea of sustainable living and think I just want to do everything I'm doing now and not make any concessions to the lifestyle I lead. But there's a way to do it kind of in a green sense, if that makes sense. Like, do we actually need to think about like make some serious making some serious changes to the way we live rather than trying to do things in a more efficient way. Yeah, uh, we're going to have to live in a different pattern. And you have to remember we did this experiment of putting everybody in a car and it worked for about 70 years. And you can only do things for, you know, two, three generations at the most. But the message is people like to be li- living in a place. I'll give Baldwin Park a, a wonderful example. You can walk out your front door and go get your groceries. You know, once people start living that experience, they're never the same. And I take students out to Portland. We spend five days. We never get in a car. And they do a, a pretty uh, intense analysis. And what they come up with is this term social capital. That's the capital we get from living in a community. They begin to understand why there's a higher social capital in Portland, why people are more involved in their community. Mm-hmm why people are outside more, why they have a lower obesity rate. They begin to understand those factors. And when you offer people that lifestyle, I think, uh, I think we can – I think it's a win-win. And, you know, one of the reasons Winter Park is so expensive is Winter Park is designed on that sustainability model where it was designed in 1883 around a train station. And Rollins College, where I, where I work, is a 10-minute – uh, walk from the train station, and that's how our students got to Rollins, up, you know, for the first 70 years of the college. There are three things that I think are really important. We had a um, symposium on sustainability, and one, uh, Nature Conservancy in Greater Orlando is working at putting together an interconnected 
park and bike system within Metro Orlando, which I think is really important with the idea that nobody should be more than a half mile from a bike. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, and this is some of the research I found, heavy investment by Osceola County in affordable housing near the uh, Poinciana train station. And number three, and like I said before, I think our hope is getting a rail connection to the uh, Orlando airport. Well, Bruce Stevenson is an environmental studies professor at Rollins College. He spent two years living in Portland without a car and studying the city's urban design and mass transit and thinking about how to apply that to other cities, including Orlando. His book about the experience is Portland's Good Life, Sustainability and Hope in an American City. Bruce Stevenson, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Up next... That's the sound of the tiny motors inside a Limitless prosthetic arm. Limitless CEO Albert Monero hopes his new manufacturing facility near UCF will allow the non-profit to scale up production so that any kid who needs a prosthetic arm can get one. More when we return. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Limitless Solutions, the Central Florida nonprofit that makes prosthetic arms for kids, moved into a new facility last August. CEO Albert Monero says the move has allowed him to scale up production, producing more prosthetic limbs at a faster rate. Monero showed me around the building in Research Park near UCF. We began in the room where the limbs are assembled from aluminum and plastic and then spray painted. We moved into our new location in August, and this is our dedicated manufacturing environment where we have all of the different ways we need to be able to build a prosthetic arm from the injection molding, the 3D printing, vacuum forming, and our automotive spray booths. Now, did these prosthetic limbs started out as purely 3D printed, did they? They started out purely 3D printed, and now we have a bit of a hybrid system where there's metallic parts, there's vacuum form parts, and there's a full automotive paint finish on the arms. And so it has really become... Uh, part of that full system. We've been working towards the long-term scalability of our program and we've been uh, cutting metal parts like this one here to be able to then place in our little injection molding machine so that we can make like hundreds per day instead of um, parts per day or something like that. So does the the metal parts, does that make your, your limbs more durable? Uh, So this allows us to then inject molten plastic around the metal core, and then it will produce the final version, which is uh, considerably stronger. Um, And it also takes about a minute to produce one of these sleeves. And that way we can scale up from it having been like 10 hours per part down to like minutes per part. And that piece of metal you're, you're showing me there, is that aluminum? Is it, is it yeah, steel? This is a carved piece of aluminum in our Tormox CNC machines. And this is actually set up to go directly in the machine, which is a vertical injection molding machine. And then after the part is produced, these pins pop up and will push the plastic part out so that we can like semi-automate the process as well. What we're trying to do is bring in the right tool for the right part of the process. And by having that flexible hybrid system, it's allowed us to be able to bring a lot of the production in-house, as well as being able to scale it a little bit faster and make parts more durable. Is there anything else you want to show me in this this particular part of the... Lead painter Alex Grindle, who's studying emerging media graphic design at UCF, is working on a prosthetic arm at one of the spray booths. So this is our painter, Alex. Hi, Alex. 
our lead painter right now and uh, is a student here at UCF. And this is the recently finished drawer of painted arm sleeves. And the cosmetic sleeves are all magnetized to the structural core and they can be interchanged. Um, and we are partnered with several different video game franchises like Halo and this one in particular is from Assassin's Creed. Okay, so th those are plastic but they've got some magnets embedded in them? Yes. Okay. Yeah, this is vacuum formed plastic. Oh wow. Oh, and, and you painted all these by hand? No, so we actually use uh, automotive paints uh -huh. and spray guns and airbrushes. Like this one. Oh, okay. This seems like kind of a hybrid of like uh, art and engineering. Yeah, definitely. And there's some design in there. I like to think that's where the art and engineering meet because we're given a sheet that a child fills out that says, I want these colors and these places, but we have to take that 2D object and turn it into a 3D object that has shadow and depth and things like that. And so you get to put a little bit of your of yourself into the work as well. And, and as Albert was saying, a lot of these are images or, or you know, designs from video games, etc. But do you do you get some creativity yourself? Like, can you just kind of invent something from scratch in terms of the the artwork? Yeah. So we do a lot of practice sleeves and practice mini arms, uh, which are these three D printed arms that we use for teaching okay. for uh, beginner uh, people in the program artists and painters but yeah so we we definitely when we're practicing we're able to sort of stretch our artistic muscles in terms of color palettes and everything like that yeah. uh, but at the end of the day you know it's all practice for what the kid is going to finally uh, give to us and so we do that the best that we can how cool is this job? <laughs> it's so awesome. Honestly, I would say I learn as much here as I do in my classes. I don't know if that's bad to say, but it's definitely very hands-on. So across the hall, we're in our assembly area, which has both 3D printers and then all of the parts that are getting assembled for a hand. So this is either where a hand will come in from being out in the wild and needs repair or troubleshooting, or we'll be starting making like a, a fresh hand from scratch. Um, so we're looking kind of at those those bins where each each hand assembly comes in kind of its own bucket with its own uh, documentation, and that kind of progresses through the facility until it's fully together. And just so I can explain for our listeners what we're looking at, there's a there's a set of shelves here. There's some kind of blue pull-out um, containers. They've each got little post-it notes on them. One of them says "Hand Battery Core." Uh, up here, there's a note saying "Reprogram All Boards," and there's bits and pieces it there's something kind of i don't know i want to say star warsy about this that reminds me of a scene from one of the movies um i mean there is something a little bit kind of sci-fi about the way these things look right yeah so we we definitely built our bionic limbs to look unapologetically non-human but very still much the the human uh, exterior but they're these that you're looking at are are fully silver robotic hands designed for our patients there are like hands in various forms of being built all over the building. Um, and then this is kind of where we're tracking each one of those bins and production status. So these are the things that have been tested out by people and you know, something's broken or something needs fixing. So does it give you ideas for how to build it better next time? So some of them are troubleshooting from things that are out in the field. And our goal is to be able to fix them quickly 
and then find ways to keep them from having any downtime in the future. And then others are like a fresh hand being built. Um, and so inside the hand, this, this shell is kind of taken apart because it's not fully assembled yet. You can see all the different motors for each finger, the different electronics that we designed that actually are the, the brain of the hand to make it open and close and do different hand gestures, as well as like the charging ports for this. And it charges just similar to a cell phone with USB-C charging. How much more complicated is this, the, like the, the piece that you're holding in your hand now compared to what you started out with however many years ago it was that Limitless got going? So the, the team here at Limitless has really advanced the design past where I ever thought it could be. It's definitely much more complicated than where, when we started seven years ago. And so this hand is Bluetooth capable and will actually pair to the parent's smartphone for charging, calibration, um, being able to test and, and see everything. And then the actual electronics here now allow for that multi-gesture control where relatively easily a, a child can learn how to use the open and close, a pinch and a point mode as well with the hand, just using the muscles on their organic limb and being able to, to control that with the electronics. Does it attach with like sensors or something? Like what's the connection between the, the body and the limb? So we have uh, what look like um, EKG wires with mm -hmm. little snaps and stickers that will go directly to the skin and it's the same as like if you had an EKG on your chest with those little gel stickers we just place them on usually the bicep muscle for where the child has an amputation um, and depending on how hard they flex that muscle we're able to tell the hand to do different gestures and that's a big part of our program is being able to train them uh, to use their muscles in that way because they may not have used them before. Is there an age limit too? Like, do you have to be a certain age before you can learn how to use one of these? Or is it intuitive enough that, that a child of any age, you'd place a limb on them and they, they could learn how to use it? Uh, so right now we're working with children between the ages of 6 and 17, and we hope to be able to expand that to include adults in the near future. Mm -hmm. Monero says Limitless is launching another clinical trial with Orlando Health in spring, recruiting up to 20 patients. He says the ultimate goal is to get FDA approval so that any child who needs a limb can get one. The new facility is about three times the size of the old location, but Monero says in five years they may need more space. I asked Monero if there are plans to branch out into other prosthetics beside arms. He explained Limitless has another project. Well, we don't work on legs. Um, we've been focused on upper limbs um, based on what we can build well and what, where the need is for the most amount of access to prosthetics here in the United States. Our second project just finished up its pilot program at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, and it's a face gesture controlled wheelchair device. And so using the temporalis muscles uh, above your forehead, we were able to like have a person flex their jaw muscles and then control the wheelchair to drive anywhere they want to go. Wow, okay. So that's kind of like you've got to have a certain amount of control of those fine-tuned muscles to be able to get your wheelchair to do stuff. That's correct. The training does matter, and so that's where we partnered with the faculty and students from the School of Visual Arts and Design and, and Nicholson School of Communication here at UCF. Um, and what we found from our first Mayo Clinic study is that learning how to use it was complicated. We were working with ALS patients who were unable to use the joystick on their wheelchair because of the advancement of the disease. And our hope is that for patients who are in that situation, that this will provide another opportunity to extend their autonomy and being able to control the wheelchair anywhere they want to go. And it can make a huge difference on the day to day if you can uh, move yourself into the room you want to be in or to be able to get the item that you need. And 
Um, I hope that that's what Limitless can continue to do is develop the tech that can empower people that way. Yeah, I think the last time I spoke to you, you, you were just about to start this trial and, and you've just wrapped it up. So is it looking fairly positive? So what we found, and we're hoping to publish that in, an, in a medical journal right now, um, is that it holds a lot of promise to being able to help people who have severe mobility challenges and that the training associated with learning how to use a hands-free wheelchair um, is complex. And so we've been continuing to develop those video game training systems so that you can learn how to drive the wheelchair in a stress-free environment um, as opposed to some of how I learned how to drive it, which was in real life running into things. Um, we, we hope to be able to provide that soon and then be able to do a secondary study with Mayo Clinic. And the doctor there is Bjorn Oscarson. So you've tried this out yourself? Oh, we've done a lot of road testing, yes. So what was that process like for you? So I think that um, there's like a, a key moment when you're driving the chair using your face muscles where it starts to like click in and then all of a sudden it gets a lot easier as you start to like map how to do that. But um, it can still be affected by stress. So if your face flushes, those muscles will contract. Um, so stress can also affect your driving. Um, and so we're trying to learn how to, we're testing in real life so that you can learn how to calibrate and produce better training environments so that the, the person using the chair in a hospital setting um, is as prepared as possible. Wow, it seems like quite a lot of pressure. Um, and, and of course, ALS is like a degenerative condition too, right? So presumably you may learn how to use it and then what would be the process there to make sure that you can keep using it as the disease progresses? The muscles on the face are some of the last to be affected by a neuromuscular disease like ALS or from a, like a quadriplegia injury, which would take away a, a user's ability to use like a joystick. And so one of the reasons we're using the face muscles is to provide as much function for as long amount of time as possible while a patient is, is going through um, the disease's progression. Well, Albert Monero, thanks so much for the tour and uh, showing me uh, what you've got going on here at Limitless. Right, we're so appreciative for you to take time to see the growth of the program, and we always appreciate being able to catch up. Intersection is supported by our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Our intern is Allegra Montesano. Find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org intersection, and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>